Lynn. Sorry. We never promised what time on Monday we would release it. Yeah. It was a mistake for us to even promise we'd release something on Monday. Yeah. We should just quit now while we're ahead. <laughs> while I we're say, behind, really. Before, too, before we're too far behind. Too far behind, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the contract with our listeners, sometime during every week, they'll get something. Yeah. Except not every week. Except not really. Uh, with the the weeks when you get when you're gonna get something, you're gonna get it. <laughs> yes. Probably on Monday, but not necessarily. Good one. That's that's the known unknowns promise. Yeah. So this is uh, known unknowns. If you're new here, yeah. welcome. I doubt you're new. Um. <laughs> well, I'm Carly. I'm Harry. Uh, and this is the podcast we do. Um, do you have anything to share? Do I? No, nothing you'd be interested to hear about. Okay. I, I, I got, uh, no, no, nothing to share. That's I cool. Would... The Olympics are coming up. Yeah, and the Olympics next, you know, just a little under a month. Yeah, I love the Olympics. <laughs> mm-hmm. The Summer Olympics, man. You like the Summer Olympics or the Winter Olympics better? I never watch the Winter Olympics, so okay. the Summer Olympics I always watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because okay. four years ago, I would have had cable mm. in my dorm, I believe. Yes. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Four years ago. Mm-hmm. Five yeah. years ago. Because didn't they postpone the Olympics last yeah. year? So it have been 2016. Oh, my God. Now the Olympics is always going to be off. Are we doing no. it in four more years? Are we doing it in three years? I think we're doing it in three years. Oh, thank God. I think it's it's like, this is messed up. <laughs> But I wouldn't have been, I have been in, yeah, I would have been in college, but it would have been summer. Yeah, so I don't know. So I don't I remember, think I would have, well, no, we would have moved. In. Anyway, I watched <laughs> I remember the watching the Winter every, Olympics in college. I don't think, I don't, I don't remember watch, the Summer Olympics. I watch the Summer Olympics every time and I love well, yeah, them. Yeah, me too. I'm just saying, I don't remember watching them in college. Someone's shooting fireworks. <laughs> yeah. If you hear banging and booming, it's fireworks. It's a little festive around for the podcast. Yeah. Oh, my God. Of course <laughs> they start. Oh, my gosh. They're so loud. I don't, they... think the, I don't think the microphone's picking it up, though. Well, now there's nothing happening. <laughs> uh, okay. They, they wait until we start the podcast to start, and then they stop as soon as we... Uh, Start talking about them. Yeah. Oh, breaking news. I bought Crocs. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I brought some, I bought some Croc slides and I bought some regular just Crocs. My slides are white. My Crocs are like a neon coral. Mm-hmm. And I have Croc gibbets. <laughs> I bought a pack of 70 on Amazon that were, that aren't real like Crocs gibbets brand, but they're, they're Croc charms that I bought on Amazon for like $10 for like 70 Nice. Right now I have an avocado with a little face uh-huh. uh, on my Crocs right now because I don't have all 70 <laughs> yeah. I have a dinosaur, a fish, a dog, a paw print, mm-hmm. 
Uh, Yoshi? Uh, do you? Yes, you do. A panda from We Bear Bears. Yes. A Peppa Pig character. I thought it was funny. A little frog. Yeah, I think you mentioned that one. And you got one more. What? You got one more. (laughs) Spider-Man. I have Spider-Man. I like Spider-Man a lot. It's the only superhero movies I've ever seen (laughs) that I enjoyed, I guess. Anyway... Those are my Crocs. Those are just on my coral Crocs. On my Croc slides, I have those put away. I have other stuff on there, like a little UFO with like a rainbow shooting out at the bottom. <laughs> you know, like the thing that abducts a person, but it's yeah. a rainbow. Yeah, so it's a gay alien ship, which is really on brand for me. And then <laughs> um, a little star with a rainbow. They're very gay slides, I'll say. <laughs> There's lots of rainbows on the Crocs. Um, and then other stuff on there that are really cute. I have okay. a unicorn on one of them, I think, on the slides because there's not on there. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Okay. That's all I got. And That's then all I, you... I bought some, um, the little backings of croc gibbets. I bought some just plain ones so I could make my own croc gibbets. So I want to make one with Harry's face on it, so I'll keep you all updated (laughs) on the Harry face croc gibbet that I really want to make. I also bought some, like, rubber plastic charms on Amazon, (laughs) like a hundred of them, (laughs) so I could glue them onto the the little croc gibbet backs to make my own custom croc gibbets. They were like little lollipops and like little pieces of candy and like little fairies and stars and hearts. They were like little girly um, plastic rubber charms. Cool. I can't wait to put them on. I can't wait to hot glue them to the croc gibbet back and put them in my crocs. Okay, good. I I hope you enjoy them. Uh. There it is, everyone. I've lost it. Yeah. Okay. These Crocs have been my like pride and joy the past few days that yeah, I've owned really these Crocs, have. haven't they? Yeah. Today <laughs> I just sat on my bed and I looked through my Croc gibbets. Wow. That's all I did. <laughs> and I've already gone through my Croc gibbets. I changed a couple of my Croc gibbets out already. I had a unicorn <laughs> on there and now there's a dog. I had... Uh, I might have changed one out of my slides. It just felt right, you know? Okay. With my mood. Okay. You felt more like a dog than a unicorn? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> so that's been what's going on. That's, that's the exciting news in my life is I bought some Crocs. I spent mm-hmm. way too much money on some rubber foam shoes, but I don't care because I'm happy. Okay, good. For once in my life. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm really happy with my Crocs. Okay, good. Harry and I bought matching 4th of July themed socks, but also like Olympics themed socks. They're from Target. They have a llama on it and it has like a little Olympic gold medal. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how it's 4th of July themed, but they it's were in the 4th of July sock. Yeah, the bottom part is red, white, and blue. We're going to wear it to the 4th of July party we're going to. We're going to wear matching socks. <laughs> Yeah, And it's perfect because I'm going to wear mine in my Crocs and then it'll look like the llama in the front because the llama's like on the front ankle portion. Mm-hmm. So it's going to look like it's just sticking up out of the front of my Croc. 
It's, it's, it's cute. It'll be cute. It's going to be really perfect. <laughs> I also have like a little llama pinata croc gibbet that I'm going to put on there because there's llamas on my socks. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. I just want to tell everyone <laughs> about my crocs. Uh, yeah. Cool. Um, man, uh, do I have anything to talk about? I mean, the WRC Safari Rally Kenya was crazy, but you don't want to hear about that. No, I don't even know what that is. I know. So I got nothing else to talk about. I've been playing NBA 2K21 on the, on the Switch. Yeah, we got a Switch. Did we say that last week? We must have. I don't remember. I've been playing Animal Crossing and Mario Kart, and yeah. Harry's just playing this like basketball game all day. I've been playing Mario Kart too with you. Yeah, with me. We play Mario Kart. We play together. Mario Kart together. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's fun. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. You're stuff. getting better. You're getting good at it. Yeah, I'm gonna play some after this. <laughs> First, I need to shop uh, on Bath and Body Works uh, semi-annual sale. To get okay. some candles and some lotion and some um, more candles. Okay. Some hand sanitizers and some hand soaps. Oh. This has been a very what? This is this has just been a, a very a very consumerist episode so far. That's okay though. I'm not I'm not judging you. I was talking about playing my video games and stuff. I brought up the Switch. I'm not criticizing you. I'm not saying you buy too much or I buy too much. I do buy too much. Thank you for calling me out. This is why I'm broke. I don't put any money towards student loans. I put them towards my Crocs. I'm just saying I appreciate all of these big name sponsors. Uh, you know, giving us paying for uh, to underwrite this episode. Well, I'm not going to shit talk on Crocs. I'll shit talk <laughs> on everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else sucks unless they want to sponsor us, then then they're great. But Crocs? No, I love Crocs. <laughs> okay. I can't say anything bad about Crocs. I've loved Crocs mm -hmm. since the day I discovered Crocs at like seven and owned like six pairs of Crocs. Wow. Oh, I love Crocs. <laughs> yeah. Clogs, if you will. Some crock clogs, some foam clogs. They're foam clogs. Crocs. Well, it's my episode this week. Yeah. Um, that's why I came came to the podcast with lots to talk about today, since it is my episode. I can talk about whatever I want. Okay. So what you what you what you what you what you doing? What you talking about? Okay. Well, now that I get into my actual topic. Now we'll get into that. So all of my information is coming from a um, a guardian. The guardian. Um, it's coming from a guardian. It's coming from. I was gonna say a guardian article, but then I said a, and then I said the guard. It's the theguardian.com. When it's okay. a guardian. Very good. Whatever. Anyway, this um, article was written by Ethan Brown. I just want Fake to say name. that now since all of the all of this came from this. Fake name. Stop it. Don't make them mad or else they'll get mad at us for sharing this. Okay. <laughs> for I'm just but... reading directly from his article, okay? <laughs> okay. I'm saying it right now. This is the article from The Guardian with things cut out and switched around. So turn off the podcast and go read the article. No, I'm no. going to read it to them. It'll be better this way. 
And I read other stuff. I can add stuff. Again, I'm, I'm going to add stuff to it. I'm not just like reading this and then sending it out. I we, know. I just talked about Crocs. <laughs> I know. I'm not. I didn't read that from this article. They I didn't know. write anything about Crocs. Those are my own words. I'm just saying that. This script, this whole podcast script, because this is all scripted. Mm-hmm. It is not all plagiarized. That's all I'll say. This isn't plagiarism. I, I'm telling you I stole this. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I, I... Anyway, you want to hear about my story? I appreciate this person in the Witness Protection Program who's been given the name Ethan Brown. Okay. Anyway, I am going to tell you the story of New Orleans's first black female homicide detective. Okay. I don't know whether that... that what? That, that brings out some mixed, some mixed uh, feelings. You know, you got New Orleans. That's a plus. You got, yeah. Uh, black female. Lo- they're great. <laughs> <laughs> love them. And uh, you got police. That's a that's a thumbs down. Okay, so let me just say this. I was hesitant to do this story. I told Harry I was hesitant to do this story because it is about a cop, and I don't like cops. Any of them. None of them are good. They all suck. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to share this story. Okay, yeah. Because she it's... seems like a pretty cool woman. And mm-hmm. like, I mean, Harry, what did you say when I told you I wanted to do this? Well, I mean, it's a, I think it's about, uh, well, I mean, hey, I mean, I think, you know, some, s- some people become cops with good intentions. Um, sure, sure, sure. Uh, but I think the, the, the little bit that you've told me about this story is, it's like, about like the futility of like uh, trying to reform the police and stuff and how they the f- you know people who do become cops with good intentions are pushed out or other bad things happen. Yes, so basically this story is just going to highlight how horrible cops are. Even to um, it will each it's, other. Yes, even to like you are going to despise all of the people involved in this except for the black female homicide detective. Okay. Like, you will like her, but you will. This is going to show you just how horrible the police are and how you can't reform this. It uh-huh. just needs to end. Uh-huh. That's all it is. You cannot reform this. <laughs> it just needs to be abolished. That's what I'm going to say right now. That's what I want to start this with. And this did. I don't know, when did this happen? But even now, it's the same. So don't even try to tell me it's from the '80s, so it doesn't no, no, apply no, here. No amount of additional funding or training will uh, improve improve this situation. No, 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 <laughs> not at all. I let's get into it, okay? okay? So we're talking about Jacqueline Davis, and she has my last name. So very good. She's pretty rad. <laughs> and I think it's Jacqueline. I would say that Jacqueline. Yeah. Not Jacqueline. Jack- Jacqueline. 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 I think it's Jacqueline. I think it's Jacqueline. J-A-C-K-L-E-A-N. I just like the name Jacqueline. It's better than Jacqueline. Jacqueline. I like Jacqueline. <laughs> Jacqueline. Jacqueline. I Jacqueline. Jackie. Okay, Jacqueline Davis. That's who we're talking about. Ready? Mm-hmm. She was born on February 6, 1957 in Cleveland to LaFrench and Frederick LaFrench. That's a good name. That's a good name. <laughs> LaFrench and Frederick Davis. 
When Davis was three, this is going to be really hard because I feel like everyone in this article's last name is Davis. So, like, <laughs> maybe I should just always say Jacqueline. Okay. When Jacqueline Davis was three, her dad, a delivery driver, died in a vehicle accident. Uh-oh. That's... Band cars, baby. <laughs> Band um, cars. This is uh, the other. Ten t- t- a job <laughs> ten times more dangerous than being a cop. A delivery driver. I guess he was a delivery driver. Hard. I to forgot do about that, that even without, though I just hard read to do it. that without uh, a vehicle of some kind. But well, without other cars on the road, it might not be as hard. Well, exactly. Okay. Uh, Jacqueline says her mother mismanaged a lawsuit against her father's employer, mm-hmm. and the inheritance he left for her and her brother, uh, who was three at the time. So she mishandled that money okay so they didn't get any money okay quote my grandfather was concerned about my brothers and my well-being and my well-being and issued my mother a threat that if she didn't put her life together he would have us taken from her davis said okay soon afterward davis and her brother boarded a bus to louisiana with her mother quote evidently it had been a pre-arrangement that my grandfather made with his sister here in new orleans new orleans end quote um oh davis says and then begin the quote again begin (laughs) begin a new quote my mother left and we stayed here in the state end quote okay davis and her brother moved with her great aunt mabel walker whom she called medea 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 yeah um and her husband willie a merchant marine in a shotgun home on barren street in the central city neighborhood Okay. It's a historical, it's a historic black neighborhood with deep cultural roots. Jazz great Buddy Bolden lived there in the early 20th century. Tyler Perry lived across the street from Davis. And soul singer Irma Thomas sang in local bars. Much later, Perry released a series of 11 Medea movies based on a fictional character named Mabel Simmons, who was raised in New Orleans. That's why she called... Or whoever, Medea. <laughs> mm-hmm. But Central City was and remains deeply segregated. Black people lived in lake-bound blocks to the north toward Lake Pontchartrain, whereas uh, whites resided on St. Charles Avenue. Oh, that sounds so white. St. <laughs> Charles Avenue and riverbound streets, meaning those on higher ground and nearer to the Mississippi River. Yeah, that, yeah. For Davis, the arrival of carnival season every year temporarily broke down racial barriers. Quote, the whole area, uh, we all mingled together during Mardi Gras. You could come on the street, you hear the music blasting. We had groups like the Neville Brothers who were, uh, who were uptown. Mm-hmm. End quote. Davis's home was different from others in Central City. She said, as a child, I constantly saw people, a group of the same people every day. And then there were times I saw strangers. All I knew was that these men did the same job that my uncle did. They were merchant marines, and they would come off the ship. They would come to the house. Mabel literally let the room... Mabel literally let the room, two rooms. They would stay a minute, or they would hook up with the ladies that would come. End quote. Davis says that her great-aunt was facilitating sex at, at her home. 
She worked at a nearby bar called Shadowland. The area around the bar was violent. Quote, people got shot, people got stabbed, people got robbed. End quote. That's from Davis. But it was Shadowland's chaotic energy that changed Davis's life. One day, Davis witnessed a man brutally assaulting a woman near the bar. Davis watched in shock as he punched and bit her. But the woman fought back. And then Davis remembers, quote, this woman beat him down, end quote. Moments later, a group of police officers, quote, just come from out of nowhere, and I'm thinking that the woman was about to be arrested, but come to find out she was a black woman detective. Whoa. Bam. So that's kind of what started her. Okay, but like, how traumatizing, but also so badass to see, you know? <laughs> yeah. You watch this, like, lady cop beat up this guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. be pretty cool. That is cool. Like an undercover. It's like a movie thing. <laughs> anyway. The detective's name was Gail Miller, but on Central City Street, she was known as Christy Love. Mm. Quote from Davis. I just became not obsessed, but every time I saw this woman, I was just in awe. The policewoman inspired me because I wasn't a we- I wasn't a weakling. I was a loner, and I was a loner because I stuttered, and people used to make fun of me, so I would never talk. And this woman, I mean, she just did something to me. I just had never had a black woman to look up to. I had always, unfortunately, been told I wasn't going to be nothing. End quote. That's so sad. There was more than sex work going on at her great aunt's home. Davis remembers Medea telling her a man uh, would be staying in the front room one night. Quote from Davis, he technically raped me. And I contacted my aunt after the man left. End quote. Medea, she said. So, uh, so Medea Davis said this about her. You didn't mess with her. I still to this day remember my aunt getting her gun and leaving. <laughs> quote. She did catch the man when she set out into the night with. Oh, did she catch the man when she set out into the night with her gun? And then Davis said, if you knew Mabel Walker, and then she said her voice, her voice trailing off. So she's pretty sure she killed the man. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Cool. Anyway. Davis says she was also sexually abused by her great uncle and her preteens Um, in her preteens until he became sick with jaundice and then with cancer while stationed overseas. Uh, He died when she was 14 years old, and on his deathbed, he asked her to forgive him for what he had done, uh, and she forgave him. Well, that's what she said. Quote, and on his deathbed, he asked me to forgive him for what he had done, and I forgave him. End quote. Okay. Davis found solace from the horrors of home and school. She thrived at Carter G. Woodson Middle School just outside the French Quarter, and then McDonough 35 in the St. Bernard area. But in her sophomore year in high school, she got pregnant and was sent to a school for wayward pregnant girls. After Davis had her daughter, Christina, in 1974, she was allowed to finish school at McDonough, 35, and headed to college at the University of New Orleans. Davis studied chemistry, but only made it a year and a half because she couldn't afford childcare and was forced to bring Christina to class. 
After dropping out of college, Davis worked a series of odd jobs until she decided to pursue her long-held dream of police work. She succeeded on her fifth attempt at the test to become an officer. Davis chose the Urban Squad as her first assignment, which meant patrolling major housing projects in both the city proper and the West Bank, uh, the areas across the Mississippi River in its we- on its western banks. Do you okay. have any questions so far? Uh, no. Okay. I, I think I understand. Wait. Okay. Well, wait. I do. So, Jacqueline Davis is the one who is the first female cop in New Orleans, right? Homicide detective. Her homicide, de- not female cop, right? Homicide detective. Black Got female it. homicide Black female detective. Com- yeah, um, why? Nothing. I was just making, I was just, because uh, there was the other detective earlier, but I, it's homicide detective specifically. She was another detective. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. She was like undercover, uh, yeah, like the, doing the, sex the, work the and v- stuff. Vice, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Davis says she was uh, deployed to public housing because drug dealers handed off drugs and weapons to women, so a female officer allowed for an easier and more comfortable search. She was then sent to the 1st District, followed by a stint in the 8th District, which includes the French Quarter, where she worked with a white female partner. The two were nicknamed Salt and Pepper, and they patrolled the quarter, where the street-level sex work flourished on the early, in the early 1980s. Quote, I knew about prostitutes and pimps, having lived with them most of my life. So whenever I, so whenever there was an issue dealing with a prostitute or pimp, they called us. End quote. Mm-hmm. After a transfer to the 6th District, Davis was promoted to Vice, which landed her back in the French Quarter. I looked up what Vice was. Mm-hmm. We I mean, that's up, like it's the... work with, working with, like, sex work, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the vice Sex squad and stuff. Crimes, right? Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, yeah. The, the, yeah. They're, they're, they're like the, the, uh, the worst cops. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It sounds, yeah. It sounds like it. Um, Davis said, said she made more than 500 arrests during a year and a half period. And it was during her time in Vice that the notion of Davis as a mythic New Orleans character began to take hold. In the French Quarter, Davis conducted Vice busts in front of neighborhood restaurants and bars to the delight of patrons who said she watched, she watched her arrests. Uh, quote, it became a spectacle. Davis remembers. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> arresting prostitutes for for an audience. Yeah, that's that's uh, yeah. something. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> this is why I don't like. The, okay, this is yeah. why I was very hesitant to tell this story. I'm not saying that she did. <sighs> yeah. No, I I understand. I'm yeah. I think. I think people uh, will hopefully understand why I'm telling this story and don't take it as me praising cops and everything she did. Right. I just, I, you know, I think we'll get into it more and by the end you'll realize kind of why I'm telling you this story, I guess. Uh-huh. And I mean, it's important, like she still did good, th- like she was an important, but it's hard to... <laughs> Continue. Yeah. Davis says she also made a potent and entertaining trial witness, 
When one wealthy man took uh, his vice arrest to court, his defense attorney condescendingly asked how his client could have found Davis, who wore white tennis shoes, jeans, and a crop top during the bust, attractive. (laughs) Detective Davis... um, Show the, oh, quote, Detective Davis, show the cor- court why my client solicited you or alleged to have solicited you, end quote. Uh, Davis remembers the attorney asking. And uh, Davis said, are you sure you want to see it? And then the, uh, the um, attorney said, yes. <laughs> so I stood up, took my coat off. I had a pencil skirt on. And by then I was 34 uh, 2438. I turned my backside and I tooted it open and pat my butt. The whole court erupted. <laughs> they had people running out the court laughing. So after that, I turned around and put my coat back on and sat down. The district attorney said, Detective Davis, do you have anything else you want to tell the court or show the court? I said, no. Got off the stand, walked out the court. The jury deliberated for 15 minutes and found the man guilty. <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> it's kind of funny though. It is. It's funny. It's funny. Okay. Police department officials made Davis wear a wire for almost two months because she was so productive. Uh, she said, I was making so many vice cases that they couldn't believe that I was actually making the cases. Davis says the wire turned up nothing improper on her part. The appeal obtained her personal file and found no disciplinary actions related to her tenor. Tenure, mm-hmm. tenure in Vice. After Vice, Davis worked on rapes, which she has described as therapy, having been a victim herself. She says she was instrumental in the arrest of David Flory, a serial rapist who terrorized New Orleans in the mid-1980s. In 1986, a New Orleans judge handed Flory mandatory life sentences on each of the two counts of aggregated rape, 15 years on each of the two counts of crime against nature, 99 years for an armed robbery, and 500 years for an aggravated burglary. Soon after, Davis joined Homicide. She says there was just one other woman, Julie Jones, in Homicide, and she was white. Her supervisor, David Morales, remembered that at least three white women in Homicide remembered at least three white women in Homicide when Davis arrived. So, I think... Mm-hmm. we can think of it as kind of like, I don't know, she was trying to do really well in this vice thing so she could move up. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, she wanted, she didn't want to be, she wanted to work on homicide cases and like rape cases. Uh-huh. Sure. Um, so she did a lot of great work with like rape and homicide cases, but she couldn't have got there unless she like overachieved because she was a black woman. Right. And like yeah, overachieved. Course. In Vice. So yeah, she kind of, sure. she like had to do this in order to not get fired and to move up to where she wanted to be. I'm well, not yeah. saying what she did was right, but like. Well, I mean, that's just, that's just that's how. how you, you have to do that. And especially as a black woman in like in the police force, like she had to do this. Like she had to be the one with the most arrests or they would probably find any reason to fire her. Right. Because that, yeah, I mean, that's what the, so it's not like she was just like going for it. Cause she was really into it. I mean, maybe, but also like she had to do this to survive and keep her job and also move up to where she wanted to be and where she could actually make like a real difference. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how the, 
the, yeah, because that's yeah how the police yes. as an institution operates. Where it has, you have to think about it. that's how the police operate, right? Like that, right? Not good. <laughs> no, <laughs> this is why it's bad. This is why it's bad. <laughs> okay, let's see. Uh, quote: They didn't want me in homicide. They accepted Julie, but they didn't accept me because, for one thing, I was black. I'm a dark-skinned black woman, and then. And then I was arrogant. I knew I was good at what I did. End quote. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's arrogant. Maybe she, she <laughs> just knew she was good at it. That's not me. Okay. Davis says her early success was partly the result of mentorship by three veteran white detectives, Morales, Norman Pierce, and Pascal uh, Saladino. But they didn't spare her from the racist attacks by her fellow detectives. Photographs of Aunt Jemima were regularly posted in her work area. Tape dispensers and the other office supplies were glued to her desk. Dog feces was placed in her desk drawers and in her office mailbox. At one point, Davis's mailbox was defaced so badly that her name wasn't visible. Sometimes detectives would go through the file room and tear her files up. Morales recalled, it got to the point where I would actually keep her files in the trunk of my car. End quote. Hmm. One day when Davis's daughter, Christina, called the office, a white officer, uh, who she refused to name, called her a little bitch. After Christina called Davis in tears, Davis confronted the officer. She was furious with him, and she said he went to put his hand on his gun during their clash. Quote from um, Davis, we about to shoot each other. When two detectives intervened, he takes his hand off his gun and he raised back like he's going to hit me. They told him, we want you to hit her. You're going to get the best ass whooping you'll, that you'll ever get up here. End quote. <laughs> around, that, around the time of the standoff, murders in New Orleans were escalating. Between the 23rd of August and December 27, 1986, a gunman went on a spree, committing eight murders and several rapes and armed armed robberies. The cases were particularly terrifying because the assailant targeted couples. In one incident, the man shot and killed Archie Chapman in his car under the Interstate 610 overpass. Uh, after Chapman handed over some cash... The man then took Chapman's girlfriend, also in the car, to the St. Louis Hotel where he raped her. Morales said the search for suspects was hobbled in part because law enforcement, quote, didn't believe there was such a thing as a black serial killer, end quote. Davis disagreed and ver... ver... what's this word? Voraciously. Voraciously. I know it. I just could I can't say it. Okay. Voraciously <laughs> pursued leads, which included a black man uh, who said he witnessed at least one of the murders. Quote, this guy would commit the murders and stay on the scene and go to the homicide officer and pretend to be a witness of the murder he committed, Davis remembers. And the detectives took him up to the homicide office and took a statement from, from him as a witness. Well, I wind up getting the case wind up clearing the case and making a name for myself that a lot of detectives started getting pretty much upset about, end quote. So that's actually like a very strange thing in history that cops like don't believe black people could be serial killers because they're not smart enough, I'm assuming. They, they're not smart enough to be serial killers. I just like didn't know that was like a thing. I mean, 
I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know that was like a thing until I was listening to a podcast by two black men and they talk about either cases where black people have been murdered like mm-hmm. and they weren't like talked about or black serial killers because those also aren't talked about and people like don't believe that black people could be serial killers isn't that weird that is it weird it's weird right i just don't i don't understand the logic there Anyone can you'd be a serial think, killer. I'm just saying you'd think they would only think black people would be like, I don't. <laughs> well, but. Right? But I guess if they think they're not, ugh, whatever. It's just weird. I was just like, that's a strange, like. Yeah, but I mean. But I, nothing makes when sense. You, when when you, I don't know. I mean, when you when you think of a serial killer, you think of a, a white guy generally, right? Well, if you just like picture a serial killer in your brain. Yeah. I, I mean, the big ones are. Yeah, Exactly white guys but and i mean yeah the most the one with the most documentaries i, I would say yeah are white guys because mm-hmm. it's more fascinating when they're like hot yeah like hot white men i should say <laughs> what <laughs> nothing what <laughs> nothing it's true yeah i know people don't care about anyone any other serial killer um Hot black men can be serial killers. I didn't say they couldn't, but the media doesn't want to talk about hot black serial killers. <laughs> okay. There. Uh, let's see. In February 1987, John Brooks was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder, though prosecutors later elected to try Brooks on four counts. Brooks was convicted on all four counts in the case, but because the jury deadlocked uh, at the penalty phase, he was sentenced to four. He was sentenced to four life sentences instead of death. Mm-hmm. In the early 1990s, were the pinnacle of Davis's career in policing. She was just in her mid 30s, riding high in the homicide department. She boasted that of 100 cases assigned to her, she solved all but two, and celebrated in national media for her sleuthing skills. A quote from Morales, uh, she was the best I ever saw at solving a murder case. There was nobody close to her in the history of the homicide division. So she did a lot of great work for homicide cases. So Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. Morales said many of the homicides in the majority black city uh, occurred in its housing projects, and Davis quickly built up a reserve of trust with residents. Morales says white detectives regularly struck out with eyewitnesses who would later cooperate when Davis talked to them. Uh, quote, it used to make the other detectives so mad she would solve these cases, end quote. But last year in an investigation into a 1987 homicide, the lens uh, a New Orleans-based nonprofit news outlet claimed that Davis withheld exculpatory evidence and gave inaccurate testimony about her investigation during the trial of a man who was quickly arrested, indicted, convicted of murder, and handed a life without parole sentence. That's how you. That's how you solve ninety-eight out of a hundred cases. Well, you'll see what happens here. Okay. Um, quote: I didn't have to talk to him. Davis told the lens of her decision to, uh, quote, the crime lab said he was found in possession of a weapon used in a homicide. So it was his obligation to tell his defense attorney how he came to have that gun. Okay. 
After her stint in homicide, Davis was promoted to internal affairs, where she worked on complex police corruption cases. In 1992, the sister of a cocaine dealer lodged a complaint with IAD about an officer. So now she's working on police corruption cases, Ah, which will get her even less liked. So up to this point, she has been, I mean, well, I mean, I guess throughout this, she is, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's doing typical cop work Mm -hmm. and stuff. Yeah. And now she's doing internal affairs. Well, so I think the comment you made earlier. Uh huh. I think people were especially nitpicky okay. about her doing. Because we'll get to it in the end, sure. but she got kind of caught on something that was dumb, right. I guess. Like it was just not. Well, sure. I mean, I, I don't think that I, I wasn't. I just. I'm not. I'm just saying she's not like. Right? I don't know. I wasn't saying that like she's any worse than the average uh, homicide detective i don't know <laughs> she's just held accountable for yeah exactly i was yeah no that's what i mean I, I i don't think that she would have done any did anything different from any other cops I, that's what i that's what i was trying to say was that she was a like pretty typical and effective think like, about how good she would have been though if people weren't destroying her files and like abusing her at work <laughs> think about how good of a how much more she could have gotten done. Anyway, what? No, I, I'm... I don't... Nothing. You don't like this woman. No, I... Th- I No, I, I I wasn't saying that. I was... I... I... Cops are not very good at solving murder cases. And so... I, no. And I, they tend to withhold or make up evidence a lot. And I'm not... Oh, you think she's, she did that? I think they all do. Oh. So she also did. I don't think she did anything worse or more than any other cop did. I just think yeah. she was, I think, uh, yeah, it sounds like I just assume that she was a pretty... Normal cop? Yeah, like did things the same way most uh, cops would have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After her stint in homicide, Davis was promoted to internal affairs where she worked on complex police corruption cases. In 1992, the sister of a cocaine dealer lodged a complaint with IAD about an officer who she was who she said was protecting him and using cocaine at his home. Davis surveilled the home in the police department's 5th district, and in early 1992, officers arrested four suspects and seized 15 plastic bags of rock cocaine. The officer under investigation by Davis wasn't at the scene, but an informant told an officer working with Davis that the officer smoked crack cocaine and frequented the residence. A few months later, in June, the New Orleans Civil Service Commission affirmed his termination after he tested positive for cocaine on a non-random drug test. Mm -hmm. Davis believed that that was the end of the matter, and there were bigger cases occupying her attention. She investigated Len Davis, a 5th District officer nicknamed RoboCop, for his brutality and protection of major New Orleans drug traffickers. And he is not related to Davis. (laughs) Okay. Different Davis. Yeah, different different Davis. Yeah, yeah. Let me just say, the amount of times people are like, are you related to this person? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Davis is like the second 
or third most common last name in the United States after Smith and Brown. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I'm not related to them. <laughs> I just have a common last name. Anyway. Um, the, sorry. Um, I was his albatross. That's what Davis says. I was albatross. albatross. <laughs> I knew a lot about Len Davis. Davis opened two IAD cases on Len Davis, but a separate inquiry into the officer uh, who had been fired for his drug use and alleged relationships with drug dealers sidetracked her. At a 1994 hearing in the case, Davis contradicted her earlier testimony, but insisted it was a mistake. Quote, I saw him at the house, she said in the hearing. Then she said... Well, no, I didn't go inside the house. I knew that the associate was inside the house, and I did see him go into the house. So I would assume, at this point, that he was inside the house with the guy. So this is what's going to get her in trouble. This whole case that uh-huh. she cracked because she got this cop on using cocaine. Then people got mad, yeah. you know, and were like, well, you lied you know yeah so this is like why even have internal affairs like (laughs) they're just gonna arrest all the people working on Um, internal affairs cases (laughs) yeah well i mean you have internal affairs so they can like say they They didn't expect her to do anything yeah exactly that's why you have that (laughs) um yeah yeah it gets dirtier so i believe she does end up getting fired for this (laughs) well we'll get into it but the whole situation was messy but like she was just she literally tried to get this guy on a cocaine thing Mm because he was working with drug dealers and then she was punished for arresting getting this cop fired he wasn't Uh even arrested he just got fired Uh even though he did also anyway she's getting she's getting in trouble Uh because she got a cop fired right that's what i'm getting at here and we're gonna get into it a little more Davis maintains that the contradiction was a mistake. She also says her boss told her, quote, this is not perjury. It's just a discrepancy in statement, end quote. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She assumed he was in the house. So she's like, yeah, I saw him at the house. And then they were like, you saw him in the house? He's like, well, no, but. I didn't she go into the house, but like I saw him. Go- I assumed he was in the house. I didn't he, go in the house, but I knew he was in the house. He went into the house. He must be in the house. I just can't believe that that was what got her into <laughs> like, yeah, he was in the house. Wait. Well, I mean, I didn't go into the house, but I saw him go into the house. I know he's in the house. I assume he's in the house. Right. <laughs> just makes me mad. <laughs> this makes me angry. It's not a, a quantum house that you can go into and not be inside of. It's not like she, like, what? <laughs> she didn't do anything wrong here. It was well, just a, okay. The closest she got. <sighs> yeah. Um, Davis maintains that the contradiction was a mistake, but on August 30th, 1994, police superintendent Joseph Ortick Jr., wrote her up for perjury, and she was suspended from August 31st to the October 11th. She was suspended. Mm -hmm. As she served her suspension, an extensive federal investigation into Len Davis and his network of corrupt officers and drug dealers neared its conclusion. Federal agents wiretapped his and his associates' cell phones, and informants fed intelligence on him to the FBI. 
Oh, well, they, they got, yeah, of course, they got her. They got her on this because she was doing the other investigation. So she couldn't keep investigating Glenn Davis. Yeah. They had to get her suspended. Yeah. 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 That, that just was something that kind of happened at the right time. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. On October 13th, just one day after the end of Davis's suspension, two men murdered 32, 2-year-old uh, Kim Groves in on orders from Len Davis. He ordered the murder because Groves witnessed Davis and another officer beat a man. Um, and then reported the excessive force incident to IAD. He was caught on a wiretap telling a man named Paul Cool Hardy to kill her. And that that's why you don't do crimes because you just you just beat up a guy and then someone sees it and then you have to kill them and it yeah. escalate just keeps escalating. Mm-hmm. Hardy tracked down Groves and shot her in the head. Along with eight other police officers, both men were quickly indicted and later convicted in federal court on charges ranging from civil rights violations to drug trafficking. Davis says she was devastated by the murder of Groves and feared for her life. Len Davis, she said, quote, put out a contract on me, end quote. Because, mm-hmm. you know, she was investigating Len Davis. Right. What? <laughs> <laughs> Just angry. Okay. That's why she was suspended. She was getting too close yeah. to the truth. I know. That's just annoying. I'm just annoyed. <laughs> I know. This is the bad part of this is what this is the part of the story that I wanted to share. Okay. Not that she made like five hundred or not that she arrested five hundred pimps and prostitutes. Also, a note on that. I was listening to a podcast. Yeah. Where they interviewed lots of sex workers. Uh-huh. And in the interview, the sex workers were like, I hate the term sex worker. I'm a prostitute. Okay. They're like, the only people who use sex workers are people who who don't do sex work. <laughs> Those are the only people who say sex work. And also sex work is kind of broad because you could be like a cam girl and consider yourself right. doing sex work because mm-hmm. that's like a very broad term of yeah, sex work. Right. And I feel like it's a lot of people who do like cam stuff or like other stuff who are like, oh, I do sex work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So pros- I, I hesitate to use the term prostitute just because of this one podcast I listened to where a bunch of prostitutes said they'd rather be called a prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> but also I want to believe the people who actually do this and who what they want to be called. You right. know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know. If you are a sex worker and you have input on that let me know because i'm confused i don't know what to say (laughs) because yeah i've heard one end like you know only say sex workers because that's the most respectful thing and then on the other end i've heard you know they don't actually want to be called sex workers; they want to be called prostitutes because that's what they consider themselves right well i mean i think that a yeah well i think i don't want to just be like a bunch of woke white girls who are like it's sex work we say sex work who like aren't actually have anything to do with sex work right i mean yeah the people who are doing sex work the bulk of it generally are people who don't have time to worry about what the politically correct exactly phrase is no i know i'm they're, they're also like they're i don't give a shit like <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. i <laughs> i don't care is what a lot of them were like they were like i don't care like i'm a prostitute yeah. that's what that was like their reaction and also these were like prostitutes i'm gonna call them prostitutes because that's what they said they wanted to be called these were prostitutes in like 
Ireland and like Scotland and stuff. So they even had like a cool accent and they were like, I want to be a prostitute. They were just like badass women. I liked them a lot. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. So I I don't know. They also. Yeah. Yeah. So. uh, Yeah. I don't know. Let me know what you think. I'm open to either side. I don't. I just, I don't want to get in trouble for saying the word prostitute, <laughs> so I'm just going to, I'm just going to say why I'm saying the word, because, anyway, um, let's see. The year 1994 was a dark one for New Orleans, and for Davis, the city's soul is in jeopardy, Mayor Mark Morio lamented. The city recorded 424 homicides, a staggering number for a city of its size, including James Darby, a nine-year-old, who had written a letter to Bill Clinton that April that said, Dear Mr. Clinton, I want you to stop the killing in my city. People is dead, and I think that somebody might kill me. So would you please stop the people from dying? I am asking you nicely to stop it. I know you can do it. Do it. I know you could. And then he died. Ten days later, on Mother's Day, Darby was shot to death at a New Orleans park, an errant bullet fired by a 15-year-old who was attempting to settle a score with a rival. Killed him. In July, Clinton told Darby's story during a weekly radio address, urging Congress to pass his Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, which included 87 billion for prison construction for states that enacted truth in sentencing laws requiring people convicted of violent crimes to serve at least 85 percent of their sentences there's just so much wrong with the, those two paragraphs <laughs> that i read that i'm just baffled i hate this country <laughs> i'll go on record right now and say i hate it here i don't like this country I don't like this story. I don't know why I picked it. It's just making me upset. Man. Any thoughts on that? Uh, well, just, just like a general thought that I thought yeah, about earlier. Um, just like, well, I mean, some uh, so some people would like say that, like you were saying with sex work, it's a very like uh, the the calling people a sex worker is something that like out of touch people care about and stuff where and where the same thing people can be said about like the um abolish the police kind of uh slogan and stuff where a lot of people in like uh poor and um majority minority communities actually want more policing because they don't get any any police no that's so true so but i mean the 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 point of you know the saying uh abolish the police is to work toward abolition and stuff i mean you know no no one realistically wants to like you know just get rid of them i like immediately i mean we should right, yeah. we need to put mm-hmm. obviously more stuff in but i don't know i was just thinking about like there there are discrepancies in policing in that some certain places and times are hugely over policed and certain places and times are hugely under policed and yeah well, I mean that in 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 conjunction with un, underserved by every other type of social service that exists, that would yeah, be ten exactly. times more beneficial than policing would be in that same area. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I mean, it's a very complicated 
thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it is and it isn't like I mean, abolishing the police should be the goal. I mean, right? Like, I'm just saying, there's lots of layers to it. Exactly. There's lots of. I mean, yes, that is the goal. That's but what I I'm was, saying, and I agree. But what you just said with like underserved communities and stuff, like it's a whole other thing to unpack there. Right. I mean, the, there are places where, with a lot of crime, that don't get any you know, any police service, where crimes are not investigated, or mm-hmm. there are no you know police c- patrols and stuff. Um, and the people living in those communities would prefer to, you know, in some cases have more police there. I, I was just, I was thinking about that at the beginning of the story when you're talking about the, like the area, the situation that she grew up in and stuff and why, you know, seeing that stuff would in- inspire her to become a police officer. Yeah, exactly. Like seeing that kind of stuff would inspire some, And I think that inspires a lot of people who grow up in that situation to become something like in law enforcement because sure. they want to do good. They want to fight that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. You know, they want to fight people they want to fight for people who have been raped or for poor people who don't have anyone to advocate for them but like mm-hmm. and then I mean, this happens yeah. you know like then you become a dirty cop well, you know yeah, and i mean well, and then like the you can't really fight the system also, even from within yeah and all, i mean also you know being a police officer is one of the few like good paying jobs that someone can get in this That's country without thing. a college degree yeah like she tried to go to college for chemistry i read a whole thing about how, like, she had to start bringing her kid to class and then professors would, like, kick her out if her kid was even making a, a sound and they were, like, a baby. Mm-hmm. And they did not let her, like, come to class with this baby. Mm-hmm. But also she didn't have money for childcare, so she couldn't go to college, but she needed to provide for her child. So then it's, like, what's a good job I can get? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Be a cop. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a good-paying job yeah. with benefits. And... Yeah, and all and you of, don't have to have a college degree. Yeah. And I mean, all of the other, you know, at any education, social working kind of stuff. None of those, um, just like housing assistance, none of those get anywhere near the kind of funding that police departments do from the city. Those are far less. There are way fewer jobs in those areas mm-hmm. of in those lines of work, and there are yeah, just way less, fewer resources and stuff, and they're way less visible than the police are. Mm-hmm. All right. Anyway, continue. When Davis returned to work in late 1994, so she was suspended, Mm -hmm. um, she was no longer in eternal affairs. (laughs) She spent the mid to late 1990s working in different districts across New Orleans. Her work in homicide was history, as were the glowing profiles in the national media. She began working in the 7th District, which covers New Orleans East. Um, Sorry. Mm -hmm. A historically black working class part of the city, so far from downtown that it feels like an exurb. Mm-hmm. Under uh, Lieutenant Samuel Lee. In the early summer of 2001, Florida based promoters with a sports oriented website called P- Big Pros Inc. approached Lee about hiring officers for a paid detail during an Essence Festival event. At this time, Davis worked details at the Superdome and at a Walmart in New Orleans East, where Lee also worked a detail. Uh, Davis says that she agreed to work a three-day detail. Okay, wait. Okay, yeah, but the big pros promoters insisted that she extend it to four days. So basically, like, a security guard. Okay. A lot of, back then, a lot of times, police officers would do, like, security gigs as well, I think. 
that still happens. Yeah, that's still a common thing. Yeah. Um, the they often do that to like make more money. But I think at this time they did it like kind well, of. I mean, on this was their just own. part of. Well, yeah, no, I mean that's still. I mean, people, they still used the police for security image or at oh. events and places and stuff. Yeah. yeah, just yeah, a specific like assignment to do mm-hmm. security for a specific thing. Yeah. So Davis says that on July 7th, 2001, she got into an argument with the promoters at a Sheraton hotel on Canal Street downtown. She says that at the end of the night, the promoters said they weren't going to pay her for the detail and that she radioed Lee, who was working a detail at Walmart that night, for assistance. When Lee arrived, the promoters said they refused to pay. Davis says the promoters claimed she and Lee did not deliver the agreed-upon number of officers, 23, for the detail. Davis insists that all 23 officers worked the detail and that the promoters then took her to a hotel room where they paid her. Okay. So that's her account of events. Okay. So she said she went to work this detail. She brought 23 people as said. As uh-huh. she said, they said, we're not going to pay you. She calls Lee in. They're like, you're going to pay us. All 23 came. And then she, then, then they paid her. Okay. Davis uh, says she accompanied one of the promoters, Tim Crockett, downstairs at the hotel where she wrote out a receipt. Quote, I specify, uh, were there any issues with this detail? End quote. Davis remembers. Quote, Crockett said, No. You willingly provide the officers with this amount of money. He signed it. I shook his hand. Then we parted. Sam paid me my 400 and something dollars. He left. I left. End quote. Davis and Lee later said they provided this receipt to their attorney, whom they said lost it. So there's also a receipt involved okay. that they were paid. Uh-huh. And that they were, yeah. Okay. A few weeks later... The Big Pros promoters filed a complaint about Lee with IAD that was forwarded to federal investigators. Mm. On February 22, 2002, Sergeant Jacqueline Davis was on a walk with her supervisor, Lieutenant Samuel Lee, when Lee got a call from their commander at the 7th District in New Orleans. Quote from Davis, the commander asked him if he knew my whereabouts, and he said, yeah, she's here, we're walking. I need you to return back to your residence. Uh, Davis recall end quote. Davis recalls the commander telling Lee, quote, you're about to be arrested. And surely uh, when he pulled up to Sam's residence, they had four black cars and two police units, four black cars for the FBI agents, end quote. For more than seven months, the New Orleans Police Department's Public uh, Integrity Bureau, the FBI, and the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Louisiana had been investigating Davis and Lee over allegations that they extorted a group of Florida promoters who hired them to work a paid detail during an Essence Festival event on July 7, 2001. Can you believe that this dispute, they spent seven months and the FBI got involved? Excuse me? <laughs> I mean, that's how, crazy. Yeah, I, I mean, I wonder how we'll get how into did it they more, okay. because this is what because ends mean, everything for her. This event, okay. Can you believe that? Because they refused to pay her, and then she's like, "Nah, you're gonna pay me." Right. Okay. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. But like, think of just just in the in the in the like big picture. Like, t- think of like two less trustworthy 
like groups of people to like have a dispute like event like florida event party promoters and stuff and and the police cops yeah yeah (laughs) how can you how can you i don't know davis's arrest effectively ended her 20-year career with the nopd she was just she was not just a veteran officer but also the first black female homicide detective in new orleans history Crockett and his promoters told a story about the night of July 7th that was strikingly different from Davis's account. They said Lee insisted they they pay $10,000 for the detail, twice the negotiated amount, with fewer than 23 officers. Crockett and his fellow promoters also said that Lee, who was armed, warned that when Tupac Shakur Shakur shorted them on a detail years ago he took the rapper and his entourage quote on a trip downtown tupac came to the city and he didn't want to pay one promoter recalled lee saying and by the time we were through with him he paid the money davis and lee were indicted in federal court on extortion and conspiracy and aiding and abetting charges in february 2002 despite the fact that davis quote was not named in the original complaint and it is unclear how she became a target of the ensuing investigation end quote according to her post-conviction counsel Hmm. so there wasn't even a complaint filed against her and then their lawyer lost the Mm -hmm. receipt <laughs> the pair were prosecuted by Pericone, Pericone, an assistant U.S. attorney. During a two-day trial that August, a stream of damaging testimony about Davis and Lee emerged from prosecution witnesses. One promoter testified that Davis grabbed him as he attempted to leave a ballroom at the Hilton. Absent from the witness stand was Davis. A jury convicted both her and Lee, and she was sentenced to 30 months in federal prison and ordered to pay $2,000 in restitution. Just one day later, however, a prosecutor with the New Orleans Parish District Attorney's Office contacted the U.S. Attorney's Office to say that he read a newspaper article about the guilty verdicts. He he told federal prosecutors that the... that the Orleans Parish DA had issued an arrest warrant on June 2, 2002 for Crockett over a bad check for $12,500 to New Orleans nightclub Tippy Tina's uh, nightclub Tippy Tina's related to a January 2002 event. Oh my god. Restitution was made to Tippy Tina's and no criminal charges were filed against Crockett. <laughs> So he wrote a bad check, right? Yeah, and restitution was paid to Tippy Tinas. <laughs> Tippy Tinas. Uh, but to the attorneys for Davis and Lee, the warrant seemed like Brady material that should have been disclosed to the defense by prosecutors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, it is. Because, yeah, they're in, they're in business of not paying people. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Because that's the guy that didn't want to pay them, right? Uh, I... Yeah, 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 Crockett. Mm-hmm. So Crockett wrote a bad check to this nightclub. So he's in the business of not paying people, mm-hmm. and then this didn't come out in court. Right. Um, on September 9th, they filed separate motions and memorandums m- memor- mm-hmm. for acquittal and new trials. Lee also filed a, a pleading that asked for the judge to examine the Brady material. The district court granted Lee and Davis's request for an oral argument and an 
evidentiary hearing, and it conducted a review of the government's files in Lee and Davis Davis's case. In the Lee and Davis cases. Mm-hmm. After reviewing the government's files, however, a judge wrote that he, quote, found nothing in the files that would constitute Brady or Gig- Giglio Giglio material, end quote. On appeal, Davis's post-conviction attorney argued that trial counsel was inefficient and adamantly refused to allow her to take the stand. But the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld Davis's conviction, writing that although prosecutors failed to disclose the arrest warrant, it was not material to guilt or punishment. Quote, even assuming that the factual circumstances surrounding the warrant and the civil complaints would have been used to impeach the testimony of the big pros partners, there was sufficient corroborating evidence to support the jury's verdict, verdict, end quote, the judges wrote. And then they say, appellants have not shown a reasonable probability that the outcome of the trial would have been different had the evidence of Crockett's arrest warrant been disclosed, end quote. That's not. <laughs> That's like a big thing mm-hmm. that should have. Daniel Medwed, Medwed, a Northeastern University law professor, said the standard the judges used, the, materi- the materiality, mm-hmm. whatever, standard, quote, is too high, especially when it's applied to hindsight. Psych- uh, psychologically, it's difficult for a judge or others to say, hey, that evidence would have made a difference. It's a fool's errand. End quote. In January 2003, more than a decade after the Ebony feature, Davis was profiled by the Times Picayune. Pica- I don't know. <laughs> this time, a reporter captured Davis not in homicide division stardom, but tearily hugging her daughter Christina as she boarded a bus at the Greyhound Terminal in New Orleans, bound for a federal prison in Tallahassee, Florida. It's like a Greek tragedy, her attorney Robert Jenkins said. Davis said that in Tallahassee she was housed in general population, a dangerous placement for a former police officer. Quote, Robert told me that they wanted to put me in population to try to break me. But my first week there, I came across over a hundred women that knew of me, and they told me they had my back. So they all liked her. (laughs) Um, on December 30th, 2004, Davis re- was released from prison to a halfway house in New Orleans and then to her long to- long-time home in New Orleans East. She took a job at the law office of her post-conviction attorney, Lori White, who is now a judge in New Orleans. The post-Katrina years, however, were good to Perry Cohn and the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Orleans. So Perry Cohn was like the one who, the judge... Of the case, of her case. Yeah, the DA, DA, yeah. In 2010, they indicted police officers for the murder of Henry Glover, who was falsely suspected of looting on the West Bank, shot to death by police, who then set his body on fire. What? Yeah, the the stuff after Katrina, like uh, cops and just white supremacists were like going, going nuts. And then the same year they indicted six officers in the Danziger Bridge Bridge case. Earlier, five other officers entered guilty pleas in the case. Clancy Dubow, political editor of New Orleans alternative weekly The Gambit, hailed U.S. Attorney Jim Letton, Paracone's boss, and his prosecutors as modern-day untouchables. 
there was more to one of these stories that I didn't put in because this is already long enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I'll get into it a little bit. Okay. So let me just keep reading. But in 2011, Billy Gibbons, a, a defense attorney for one of Perricone's target, Frederick Hebe, a businessman facing a federal investigation over $160 million landfill contract, noticed that a commenter on the Times Picayune's website named Henry L. M- Menken, 1951, Okay. User, that username, sounded like Paracone. Okay. Gibbons hired a former FBI language expert who analyzed writing in the Unabomber case to examine the posts and filed a lawsuit alleging that alleging that the anonymous commenter was someone in the U.S. Attorney's Office. So, someone anonymously from the whatever office, U.S. Attorney's Office, was commenting things. On this website. Okay. So we'll get into that. Okay. Um, on March 20th, 2012, he resigned. It was later determined that beginning in or around November 2007 through uh, for- March 14th, 2012. So Pericone resigned, I believe. Yeah, okay. Because Pericone, Pericone, I don't even know if this is his name, Pericone posted more than 2,600 comments on NOLA.com using at least Five online identities, uh, Camp, Camp, Sit, Blue, Camp, Camp, anyway, those were his names. Okay. (laughs) They list his five usernames. And then between 120 of those posts related to cases prosecuted by the U.S. Attorney's Office. So he would. He would go on the Times Picayune website and comment on the articles. Stuff that that he was. Yes, working on. Prosecutors later dropped charges against Hebe. Um, verdicts in the Danziger, Bridge, and Glover cases were suddenly at risk. An internal investigation by the Justice Department found that other high-ranking members of the office had made similar comments online. In September 2013, the Danziger Bridge verdicts were overturned, and in 2016, five of the officers entered guilty pleas to charges that significantly reduced their sentences to 3 to 12 years. That same year, a federal judge reduced the sentence of former New Orleans officer Gregory McRae, who set Glover's body on fire after another officer shot him from 17 years to just under 12 years. Paracone's online commenting also led to Letton's resignation. But Paracone's comments about police misconduct overshadowed comments about black people and the black community in New Orleans. He lamented, quote, 30 years of black rule, end quote, in one post. According to the New Orleans Advocate, uh, there was a lot of other things that I wasn't going to say. So I'm not going to, but he wrote a lot of other nasty things about black people. Um, Such posts carried profound equal justice implications for a prosecutor bringing cases in one of the blackest cities in America. Okay. What? Nothing. Yeah, I, I'm just... He was uh, writing racist comments. This yeah, is insane, no. right? Yeah. Like, Yeah. But in July 2014... Um, wait, let's see, let's see. No, Robert Jenkins, the attorney who represented Davis at trial, referenced Perry Cohn's comments during the trial of another client, former New Orleans. So he wrote comments about her trial as well. Okay. There was a let's whole... See. There was a lot more to this. He wrote a bunch of dirty comments. 
Okay. About Davis's case. Got that it. That he then... So that's bad. Right? right. That's really bad. Um, In a mem- memorandum... To support a motion to continue filed in September 2013, Robert Jenkins, an attorney for Nagin, Nagin, who also represented Davis at trial, argued that, quote, online postings already evidence wholly unacceptable personal and racial commentary about the defendant, referring to posts by Paracone. But in July 2014, Nagin was sentenced to 10 years in a corruption case brought by federal prosecutors in New Orleans. In 2015, the Times... obtained a copy of a report about the online commenting from the DOJ's Office of Professional Responsibility. The report was heavily redacted, but it did note that Paracone and Mann, quote, caused significant damage to the goodwill and reputation, end quote, of the DOJ and the U.S. Attorney's Office. Okay. (sighs) We're almost done here. We're (laughs) almost done. Okay, got it. Are you following me so far? Thank you. Because I'm not. No, I am. But it's kind of hard. As Davis, we're back to Jacqueline. Okay. As Davis predicted, Perry Cohn's day had come, but she wasn't happy. Quote, when all of that stuff started happening to Sal, it really saddened me. I actually felt pity for Sal. But he destroyed my family. He destroyed my daughter. I'll never forget when that jury came back and the judge said guilty. My daughter cried so loud in court that everybody held their head down. End quote. I'm assuming his first name was Sal, Sal, Sal something. <laughs> yeah. Davis has also long warned of the dangers of excessive force, but in the wake of George Floyd's killing in Minneapolis, she doesn't feel satisfaction that her worldview has been redeemed. Instead, she said she is mourning both Floyd's family and her former profession. Quote, in regards from Davis, in regards to the protests, I'm 100% behind them, she said. As a supervisor, if I had a subordinate like Mr. Chauvin, I would have been on him like gravy on rice. If you cross that line, you ain't going to worry about internal affairs. You ain't going to worry about the superintendent. You got to worry about me because I'm going to be the one to throw you underneath the bus. End quote. She adds, sounding relieved, that a grandson who is interested in joining the New Orleans Police Department and later the feds is going into education. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. That is funny. (laughs) She hates the cops now. I love them. I love her so much. Now, as COVID-19 continues its deadly spread in the city, particularly among black residents, Davis feels a different, more personal pain. Quote, being a homicide detective, civilians think we have no feelings. But during this virus, people that I interacted with, people I knew, people I care about, became victims. The last matriarch of my family, my mother's baby sister, passed away, and I lost ten friends. So coronavirus put me in a whirlwind of feelings. I'm the one that stood over death so many years, she said. I'm the one that saw the worst of society, but... But coronavirus took a toll. Everyone that I loved and continue to love, I say this. I will meet you in the afterlife. I have no regrets. God could take me tomorrow. I lived my life. End quote. That's my story. Okay. Wasn't that a beautiful ending, but it's such a sad ending? Mm-hmm. I love that she's like, thank God my grandson is not going. <laughs> he doesn't want to be a police officer. Right. He's going into education now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I thought they were. I I kept the stuff in about George Floyd and 
coronavirus, just COVID-19, <laughs> because I don't know, that's, that's still happening. Uh-huh. The pandemic is still happening in a lot of places, so. Yeah. For some reason, I thought you told me that she got murdered at some point, but I guess not. No, her life was just ruined. Yeah. <laughs> she got well, fired and too. went to prison. Yeah. And then she couldn't ever work again, basically. I mean, she worked another job, but not as a cop. Right, yeah. No, she didn't die. That's good. Mm-hmm. It's good when people don't die. So how do you feel about this story, Harry? How do I feel about it? Uh. Yeah, how do you feel about this story? Do you hate that I told it? No. No. It's about... I think it's going to be a controversial ep. That's what I'll you say. You do? Okay. Yeah, because it's about a cop. Okay. <laughs> we hate them. Right. We hate them here at Known Unknowns. <laughs> I don't know. I was hesitant to tell this story. Now uh-huh. it's now it's going out, and I'm a little nervous about it. But we'll see. <laughs> I, th- I think it, I think people. Will... I hope people understand why I told it. Yeah. It had we had a good conversation about a lot exactly. of stuff. I think that was the main reason. I wanted to tell it. Yeah. Because I had lots of thoughts yeah. and feelings about it. <laughs> hmm Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, this poor woman. <laughs> I don't know. I just feel really yeah. bad for no. her. I'm sure. Yeah. She, she tried her best. She tried to do good. She tried to make a difference, but you can't. You can't yeah. make a difference in... Yeah, law the, enforcement you know <laughs> the whole institution is it made a bad it made a very good woman making a difference yeah someone who wanted to help and make change they made her corrupt as well right yeah she had to arrest a bunch of prostitutes and sex workers <laughs> that sucks mm-hmm. that's not cool no it's really not cool no Mm-mm. um all right. Well, that's it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that are we done? Are we are we done with? It's late. Yeah, it's really late, and I want to go oh, to bed. It's about bedtime. Yeah. So that's uh, that's, that's all, the episode. Folks. Let us know what you think about this one, because I'm conflicted. My I have conflicting emotions, and I don't really know how to end this mm-hmm. to make everyone happy, because I know it's not going to make everyone happy. it's gonna make some people mad i'm gonna assume um but i stand my by i stand (laughs) by my decision to tell the story i don't think people will i don't think anyone's gonna be mad at you (laughs) we'll see we'll see lots of controversy here (laughs) do you want people to be mad at you no i really don't that was why I didn't want to tell this story. I don't think anyone's going to be mad at you. All right. Well, I want to end this now because okay. I'm tired. Uh, ha- happy podcast. Happy uh, podcast. Thanks for day. listening, everybody. Thank you. Uh, I've been Harry. I'm still Carly. And this has been... Known Unknowns. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Because it's weird out there. Bye. Bye.